Good morning, church. My name is Clara Nightum. We're going to read this morning from Acts 13, starting with verse 13. And in your pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 1678. This is not just the story of ancient people. It is our story. So let us pay attention. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan giving their lands to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was com completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophet that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that though Jesus, the, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I am going to do something in your day that you would not believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism 
followed Bar Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, <clears throat> almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Clara. Hey, everybody. It's kind of a little presumptuous to preach on a sermon, right? That's never stopped me before, I guess. Um, try to get the Packers and the Bears off your mind. They'll still be there when this gets done. <clears throat> One of the things that comes up over and over and over again in the Bible and in human experience is just a difficulty with recognizing what's right there in front of you, what's actually happening and, happening and how we should actually respond to it. So this last Thursday, Alexi and I, um, we have our date night on Thursday nights, and so we were gonna go over to Mike and Nestle Beresford's house to help them unload their stuff that they're, from Tractor Trailer, doesn't that sound romantic? And um, so we got in the car to drive over there. We're already running a little bit late. And I'm going to start the car, and this, this young woman comes running across our lawn and starts pounding on my window. And so I, I open my door and I know she's the grown daughter of one of our neighbors. And I said, um, are you okay? She's like, she's like, help me, my house is on fire, right? And so I look at her house. It doesn't look like it's on fire. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, I was cooking something in the kitchen. And then my, she and I went out and the door shut behind us and it locked. And so there's a fire in our kitchen and we're locked out of the house. I need somebody to break a window. I was like, wait a second. Do I get to break a window in this scenario? <coughs> Are you saying that something's on your stove and if we don't do something, it's going to start a fire? Are you saying there's already fire? She says, I'm saying there's already a fire. And I need someone to break into my house and stop the fire. I'm saying, and you want me to do this? She says, yes. I was like, awesome. So I went and I got my 15-pound crowbar, and I ran over there. I was like, are you sure you want me to break this window? She said, yes. I went, okay. And I smashed that thing until it was all out, and I unlocked the door, and I ran in, and I put the plate, I ran them outside, and then I was like, I need a fire extinguisher. So I ran to my boat, because at that point I was like, oh, I have a boat, and you're supposed to have a fire extinguisher. So when I got my fire extinguisher, and I ran to the house not realizing it was probably the original fire extinguisher from when my boat was originally purchased in 1990, and I went in, and I sprayed it at the fire, and it went <laughs> onto the thing, but it was enough that the melting microwave was sort of okay and I was already starting to die and I've die of cyanide poisoning. So I ran out of the house knowing that the house would burn down and the police department would be there. And so I got to be an amateur firefighter for like four minutes. So it was really fun. It was really fun. So the whole inside of my nostrils were black and the fire, the fire chief was like, yeah, that was really stupid. So he's like, you, you, you probably saved some property damage, but it, you probably shouldn't do that. So... I have never, I never thought I would be asked to do that. It just took me a while to recognize what on earth was happening. And you would be, I, you know, sometimes we were kind of shocked at like how much of life is issues of recognize what's happening and act accordingly. Um, that, that's basically human growth, right? You babies basically go this really long process of like, oh, that's what that means. And oh, my stomach isn't 
like blowing up. I'm just hungry and all, you know, that's just what life is. In fact, in the, in the history of, of Western thought, some of the most neurotic philosophers have been engulfed in this idea of can we believe that what we think we experience is what's really there as opposed to what we're really experiencing? I mean, Locke, Kant, Descartes, all these people. Most people generally believe that if, if their eyes tell them a fist flew at their face and struck them and their nervous system agrees, they're like, I think I just got punched in the face. And they just jump to that conclusion. Because that's just normal, normal human life. Because when you come to the Bible, the Bible's interest in our recognition problems is actually not the philosophical ones. And it's actually not even though, like, this is sort of rare. It is, we have, we don't, we don't actually want to know the thing that we're supposed to be finding out about and so our resistance keeps us from seeing what's true and what's there. In fact, if you look at this passage that we're looking at this morning, which is rather long, two of the, three of the texts in it demonstrate that one of the major themes of this passage is, is, a, is human recognition problems. That God is there. God is saying something to human beings. God is trying to be really, really clear about what he's saying to human beings. And human beings are really, really good at not getting it. At thinking it's really obscure, totally impossible, or how could that possibly be? As, as we go through this text, um, the first is in verses 26 to 31, which is where Paul is saying, when Jesus was in Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem didn't recognize that he was the Messiah, that he was the king. That he was the Savior. And so they crucified him, and they killed him, and they put him in the ground, and God had to raise him from the dead. And meanwhile, it says that—what does it say about that? He says, when the people were killing him, they were fulfilling what was written about them in the prophets. And then what does he say about the prophets? Which are read to them every Sabbath day. So every Saturday, they hear the prophets read, and then they went and fulfilled the words of the prophets, not knowing it. By killing Jesus. He's like, it's a, it was a recognition failure. It was kind of a problem. And then in, whoops, wrong button. And here we go. And then here he quotes, he gets to the end of his sermon, and what does he end his sermon with? He ends, he ends his sermon with an implicit invitation by saying, don't let what the prophets said in Habakkuk 1.5 happened to you, which is the people had been disobedient to God for like 450 years, and they were just not—they would not repent. They would not turn to God. They would not listen to him. And so he sent the Babylonians to basically burn down everything, kill them, and take them all captive into Babylon. And, he, and Habakkuk says, listen, you who scoff. That is, they don't recognize, but they say, you're crazy for thinking that when somebody tells them the truth. He says, wonder and perish, right? Had the experience of like, oh my, I, I can't believe this is really happening. And then they die. So something's going to happen to you that you would not have believed, even if somebody who said that they'd personally witnessed it told you about it. And Paul says, don't let that be you. Make sure that isn't you, right? And then as the passage moves on, he finishes preaching, and then the people that he spoke to do exactly what he said the people in Jerusalem had done and what the prophets had warned against. But they don't do it out of confusion. They don't do it because there isn't any information or they don't really know. They do it because they don't want to know. Because human beings, when we don't believe the gospel, tend to function within the realm of fear and pride. And pride will always produce ignorance because it always narrows curiosity. And so you can listen to something and you hear a little bit about it. And because of our pride, we go, oh, I get that. And then you think you've got that other thing and you're like, oh yeah, I understand. That's one of the things I understand. And then you start applying it to other things because you think you understand it. And the whole thing turns this kind of this mess of ignorance that comes from the fact that because we think we know it all, we tend to be pretty ignorant about things that are super important. Such that Paul could say, all the prophets and all the law belong to all the Jewish people, and they read it every week. And yet, there wasn't sufficient curiosity. There wasn't sufficient clarity that when Jesus showed up, people went, oh, there's the Messiah. Or the law was so clear and the Jewish people read it for a half a millennia. And so that when God would come through the prophets and say, hey, would you please do what I told you to? They'd be like, what are you talking about? 
the failure recognition is a willful ignorance that comes from our pride and the jealousy that breeds the anger at the person who tells us the truth comes from our fear. And that's normal humanity. The people who experience a recognition failure, the people who are morally liable for their recognition failure in this text are not there so that you and I can look at them and feel self-righteous in relationship to their experience and choice. They are there because we are supposed to recognize human beings are all basically identical with each other. And what normally happens to human beings normally happens to all of them. And that is therefore the appending danger for every one of us. One of the ways I think that that comes across for people um, who are sort of Bible-believing, born-again, evangelical Christians. So our subgroup, 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 subgroup at High Point. The same thing happens with us. Let me give you an example of it. How many people have ever heard this verse? No eye has seen, nor mind conceived, or ears heard, nor mind conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. Or the King James is something, no eye has seen, nor ears heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Who's heard that verse before? Okay. Keep your hand up if you've ever heard that verse spoken about in relationship to heaven. Anybody? Okay. Is that verse about heaven? No, not at all. Now, as a standalone statement, is that probably true about heaven? Probably. It's going to be pretty good. I imagine that'd be an okay way to describe it. But if you actually read the biblical text that is in, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's very clear. It says, the rulers of this age did not recognize Jesus. He was not what they were expecting. He was not this big king guy. He wasn't slick. He wasn't doing what they wanted him to do. He didn't look like a Messiah to them. And so they killed him because no eye has seen or ear has heard or mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That thing is the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus who interposed himself for our salvation. That thing nobody could have ever thought up. It was so completely out of human experience and thought that nobody dreamed it up. And that's amazing about Jesus and has nothing to do with heaven. So why do the majority of American evangelicals think that verse is about heaven? Right? Have you ever heard the verse, um, as, um, as my thoughts are higher, as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, and my ways higher than your ways? What is that about? Well, it's about God being bigger than us, and he thinks bigger than us, and we need to think outside the box and be creative. It's it's nothing to do with any of that. If we read where that comes from in Isaiah 55, verse 8, the whole seven verses that come before that is this. God basically says this. I forgive and pardon terrible human beings. Okay, that's the whole seven verses about. He says, listen, anybody who's actually thirsty or hungry for redemption— All you have to do, God says, is come to me, turn from your wicked ways, and in faith, turn and ask for forgiveness and pardon. And he says, I freely give it to anybody who does that, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. That is, you don't forgive people. We don't forgive people. We don't think bad people should be redeemed. We think of ourselves as good people. We think of other certain kinds of people as bad people. We think they should go to hell or have a bad life or not succeed economically or not be given opportunities. And we think we should be treated as fantastic because we are fantastic. And God basically says, I don't roll that way. I don't think that way. That is crazy. And that's not how I think, but it is how you think. Because you think, and as high as the heavens are above the earth, so low do we think about redemption. And how high does God think about redemption? That's what that verse is about. When I was in seminary, one of the things that you'll notice when you start reading the Bible, especially in the, obviously in the New Testament, this will be true, is the New Testament authors will quote Old Testament verses in the New Testament. And at first you just read over them because you think they're part of the New Testament. But then you're kind of like, oh, he's clearly quoting something. Where's that from? And so you ask some friend, they're like, oh yeah, that's the old, in the Old Testament. And you're like, oh, and you actually can look in the Bible. Like if you have a pew Bible, you can look at these verses that are kind of indented 
and they have a little letter, and you can look at the bottom, and you go, oh, hey, Psalm 2-7. So that's where it's from in the Old Testament. It's from Psalm 2-7. That's important. But then you start looking them up, and you go, okay, let's look at Psalm 2-7. And you're like, so this is talking about the resurrection and Jesus and all this kind of stuff. And then you go back to Psalm 2-7, and it's some song about ascending king at some point where God says about the Israelite king, you are my son, today I've become your father. And you're like, what on earth does that have to do with this passage? Right? And, you're, and, and there's only two thoughts that come to most people. One is, either the New Testament authors were terrifyingly religiously dishonest and trying to steal the religious heritage of the Jews for themselves and to appropriate it for this new Christianity thing, or they're incompetent, right? Or the Holy Spirit somehow led them to do that, and so we should just accept it. Because the, the one thing you know is that it doesn't make sense, right? And when I was in seminary, listen, I had seminary professors who said, he said, listen, what the apostles do with the Old Testament, you cannot do. Okay? They were led by the Holy Spirit. We believe that they were inspired. And so they can do it and you can preach how they do it. But don't you do that because you're not an apostle. But I had one professor that said, that is not true. The reason you do not understand the Old Testament text in that New Testament text is because you are terrifyingly ignorant about the Bible. And you simply will not dig deep enough to find the truth. You just won't do it. I had a couple people on staff looking at this. I gave them the thing. I said, you see these three Old Testament passages? I want you to find out why they do make perfect sense in this passage. And they came back and they gave me their answer. And I was like, that's very interesting. You clearly learned something about the passage. You are wrong. Here's what it means. And they, you know what they said to me? They said, wow, how did you do that? when we couldn't do that. And I said, I spent two and a half hours on it. How long did you spend on it? And they said, about 20 minutes. Right? The staff members shall go unnamed. <laughs> right? Do you see, once you recognize that, you begin to see that the human phenomenon of out of our pride being extraordinarily uncurious about the truth. It's true about us. Salvation of Jesus, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Word of God written, it has an effect, but not near as deep as maybe it could. Martin Luther once said about something in Ecclesiastes, he said, I have been hammering on the teacher all week, and he will not yield his truth to me, but he will yield. Meaning he sat in Wartburg Castle and he worked on a verse for a week, all day long, to try to understand what it really meant in its real context and what God was really saying there. And after a week of that, he could not—he had some idea, it was sort of sort, but he didn't see it. And he, that something had happened in him that he was curious enough to bang on that thing until it broke open. And some of us—well, it's probably true of all of us— there is, there is a pride that produces an incuriosity in us. And it does that to every human being. We are all the same. But the redemption of Jesus can draw us in. It can widen things out. It can teach us when we realize our infirmities, we can do things against them. When you know, when you believe that that verse is supposed to be there, and that that Old Testament author <laughs> knows way more about the Old Testament than you do, and that it is probably dead on right, if you and I understand it, you'll work harder at it. You'll say, I'm going to find this out. Right? What does, you are my son today, I've become your father, mean? In this passage. What does... I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. How does that prove the resurrection happened? Right? Verse 34 says, God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. 
And now you might say, well, it says, and so it says elsewhere, I will not let your Holy One see decay. That was a promise to David. He will give you the Messiah that. But here's the problem. Isaiah 55, that verse, B, Isaiah 55, 3, that is not about a single person. That's about the nation of Israel. So what I want to do for a few more minutes here is look at the main truth of the whole passage, which is that the resurrection of Jesus is God's message to our recognition problem. We have a huge, constant, enduring recognition problem, and the resurrection of Jesus is God's message to us. That's why the Christian faith isn't about what you can earn and what you can do and how much merit you can get. There is an illumination of a message that is offered to us, and therefore the human response is belief. It is recognition that we were wrong not to believe it, and that now that it's come to us and persuaded us in its truth, we believe it. That's why the most fundamental action of Christian faith is always faith. And all action and all emotion and all things that flow from Christian faith flow from a constant repentant faith. So I want to go at, I want to go at that fact through four parts that come from these five Old Testament passages. Because I want to, I want to keep pricking us about these Old Testament passages and their use in the New Testament. The first is, is that Jesus is the Savior King. And in, in this sense, this is a very good passage to put to rest um, any belief that Jesus is a religious good and service that you can consume to make yourself feel better, or that Jesus is a, is a therapeutic savior that is there to tell you that you're fantastic and that you're a super awesome person and that, you know, you just, you just need a hug and when life, which is kind of hard, is over, he's going to take you to the perfect spa in heaven. Because the one who is the savior is the king. And in this passage, the reason he's the Savior, the proof that he's the Savior, is that he is God's exalted king. Without being king, he isn't Savior. And so Jesus can only be accepted as the one who saves and redeems us as king. No, you cannot believe in a version of Jesus who saves you and makes your life better, who can't tell you what to do. That's what it comes down to. Now, um, Paul says this early on in the text when he says in verse 32 and 33, we tell you the good news. What's the good news? What God has promised to our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children. Prepositions can sometimes be everything. By raising Jesus from the dead. So he's saying that it is in the resurrection of Jesus that in that he is fulfilling to us what he has promised through our fathers. Now, by our fathers— He's specifically referring to our father David, but I'll talk about that in the second point. Now, when you look here, one of the things that's interesting is there are four references that Paul makes to Jesus being raised. Now, there are other words in the Bible that God um, inspires people to use to talk about Jesus' resurrection. But in this passage, Paul only says raised. Now, that's actually significant because there is a metaphorical connection between Jesus being physically as a human being raised out of a tomb to life and how God makes his Savior king by raising him to the throne. So there's, there's always a raising of enthronement when somebody becomes king, and Jesus is raised up. In fact, in a number of these references, it, it, it doesn't say from the dead. Like that, that, by raising up Jesus, as it is written. So notice, in the other three references, it says that God raised Jesus from the dead. But in the one that comes right before Psalm 2, he says that Jesus was just raised up. Now, why does that matter? Because in Psalm 2, the way this works is, the reference to father and son is a reference to the raising up of someone to be king over all things, under the God who is father. So even though the verse uses father-son language, it comes from a context that is about someone becoming king. Okay, so this is what Psalm 2 says in its context. Then he, that's the Lord, the God over all things, rebukes the nations in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, 
I have installed my king in Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, so the king is installed by God. Then that king will say, God said to me, the king, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. See what he's saying? So there's always a raising to the enthronement of king. And then the throne of God is up on a hill. And so there's this sense of like the king coming up. And so Paul talks about Jesus being raised. And he said, don't you see? It says in Psalm 2, you are my son today. I've become your father. What Paul is saying is that when you understand this in his context, it is the Jesus whom God raised up that in raising him up made him king. And as king, he is the savior promised through David. That's the claim. The claim is that the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus is the savior king. And he is the savior king for all the nations. Now, the next question is, what's, so what's the significance of that, right? And the, the significance of that, according to the apostle in this sermon, is that forgiveness and justification come through repentance and faith to resurrection. So what he, the way he lays this out, he says, once you realize that Jesus is King Jesus in the line of David, what that means for everybody who hears it is this, that forgiveness and justification— Come to anyone through repentance and faith unto resurrection. Forgiveness is essentially pardon. When there is a real moral cost or penalty we should have because of something we have done that is objectively wrong, we can never pay those. Those aren't the sorts of things you can pay back. They can only be written away or taken away. The person who you owe your guilt to can release it. They can release their claim on you. And it's one of the reasons why in the Bible, the relationship of forgiveness is always talked, is often, not always, is often talked about in relationship to debt. Because it's a similar metaphor. Debt can be incurred, you have debt, but whoever you owe that debt to can say, I'm gonna cancel your debt. And he li God likens that all the way through the Bible to forgiveness. Our moral failures create a real moral debt and they are owed to someone. And God claims that they are owed to him. And therefore, he has the right to cancel them on the proper moral grounds. And when that pardon comes, the status of the person that's been pardoned is what's called a justified position, or what we call in the Christian faith, justification. It is, a, it is that there are no accusations left to be made against you that have standing. And so your standing is perfectly free. And what this text says is, so how is that pardon won? How is that justification gotten? And what this text says over and over again is through faith, through repentant faith, through admitting that we're wrong, through recognizing that God is right and that we need him and that we receive his pardon and that we become his, and through that, we gain access to the promises of God given to his servant David, which includes actual bodily resurrection, ultimately, into the presence of God. Let me, let me show you why that matters. So in two places, Paul explicitly says this. He says, Jesus is the Savior. He said, now remember, before Jesus, or after Jesus, no, sorry, before Jesus, before Jesus was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said he preached repentance and baptism to all the people. So he told all the people, the Savior is coming, right? He says, there's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, right? What kind of person's sandals are you not worthy to untie, Right? Somebody who's king, or God, or both. So he's referring to the Messiah king coming after him, the Savior king, and he says, but here's how you get ready for that. Here's how you get ready to meet him. Repentance and baptism. And baptism is, of course, a symbolic action that points to repentant faith, right? And then when he gets to verse 39, he says, through him, that is Jesus, everyone who believes is justified. 
from everything you could not be justified from by the law or beforehand. So the way this second Old Testament passage plays out is this. It's a quotation from Isaiah 55. The whole first eight or nine verses of this passage is Paul getting to David, which is the verse above this, right? The history of the Jews, all this happened, we went to Egypt, he endured our conduct. This all took 450 years, and then there was Samuel and the prophets, and then we had King Saul, and then there was David, and David was really awesome, right? He's all that's just to get to David. And then he says, from this man's descendants, that's David, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And you see how he connects that statement of promise to this, God promised our ancestors. Why those words? Because he's going to connect it right there in Isaiah 55. How do we know that whatever's happened in relationship to Jesus is actually for you. Is it just for the Jewish people? Is it for ancient people? Is this some primitive Semitic religion? Like, what, who's this for? How wide is it? And it, you sitting right where you are right now, is this literally for you? And what Paul says is when you see these promises, that through the promise to David, it comes to Jesus, and he is the promised one who it's fulfilled for us by the resurrection because Jesus is the enthroned king. God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. See, if you look at the passage, this is the passage in Isaiah. The highlighted section there, the bolded section, is the verse that, that Paul quotes. But this is the whole section. And this is God speaking and inviting people to come to him. He says, come you, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor, on what does not satisfy? Listen, now think about this. Why would you repeat listen twice? Unless you were talking to somebody who has a recognition problem right? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair, the richest foods. Give ear or listen and come to me and hear me so that your soul may live. What does he mean by that? Like, does he just mean he's going to be nice to us? How good is this actually going to be? He says explicitly, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. Now, if you don't know your Old Testament very well, in 1 Chronicles and in 1 Samuel. David becomes king, and it is the only place in the Old Testament where God makes an agreement with a human being, makes a promise to them, and they, he says that the promise is an irrevocable, everlasting promise, meaning there's no contract. The human beings don't have to do anything for it to happen. It is an everlasting promise. So even the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses that formed the Jewish people, all of that, it's not referred to as an everlasting covenant. Only one person receives an everlasting promise, and it is David. And what God is saying in, in this—sorry. What God is saying in this passage— is that that everlasting promise is being made with you, plural. Who is you? Who is you? You in this context is everybody who fits this description. That is, anyone who will listen. Anyone who will listen. Anyone who will release their pride and the ignorance that comes from their pride and fear and their jealousies and will listen to God's invitation and him pleading with us to come and re simply receive from him forgiveness and pardon and all of the relational things that come from belonging to God. <coughs> Anyone who will listen and who will receive that and come to him counts in receiving the everlasting covenant that is promised to David. 
He clarifies, see, I have made him, that is the one who will fulfill this covenant, the servant, a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. That is, it's much wider than Judaism. Surely you will summon nations you don't know, and nations that you don't know will come hasten to you, because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, to our God who will freely pardon. So all that talk about food, sadly, is metaphorical. (laughs) Not entirely, but it's mainly talking about a human hunger and a need for food. And God is saying there's this enormous promise that is meant to fulfill you. Like drinking the best wine, the richest cream, the best foods, it's meant to satisfy. He said there's a specific promise that can be received, a eternal covenant I've given to David and to the Savior that would come in his line. And what is left for us is this. He says, it's repentance. It is to say you want it. It is to be drawn in. It is to confess that you have walked the wrong way. And he said, if the wicked man or the wicked one will say, that was wrong. I don't want to be that anymore. And he says, if he will just turn to God, what does it say God will do? He will freely pardon. He will not punish him. He will not give him what he deserves. He will not treat him the way he deserves. He will freely pardon him. And it is after verse 7 that verse 8 comes. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts, says the Lord. Because we don't think like that. And that's one of the reasons we have a problem recognizing the truthfulness and the validity of this consistent pleading promise of God to we humans who have such profound recognition problems. And yet, Paul's saying this, and he doesn't stop there. He takes it one step further because he demonstrates that one of the reasons we know we can receive those promises is because Jesus is the one David trusted in for it to fulfill the everlasting promise God made to him. And therefore, Jesus was the reason David believed he would be resurrected. You see, um, Paul quotes Psalm 16. This is the context. The bolded part is the part that Paul quotes. Around it are the, is its biblical context in Psalm 16. It says this. David is writing this song of worship. He says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure. That is, rest in death. Because you, that's you, O God, because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Now, you might read this and say, oh, it's Hebrew literature, therefore it's in parallelism. And so, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices refers to something very similar, right? There's an internal feeling of gladness. He expresses it through what he says, right? Why? Because my body will rest secure. Why? Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So, as you your Holy One, that is, David believed in God, right? He believed in God's forgiving work. He believed in his everlasting promise and covenant. So he says, I be- so he counts himself as his Holy One. And so he says, you won't abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And not seeing decay is kind of a euphemism for not ultimately being left in decay, right? That's how you could interpret that. What Paul says is that's the wrong way to interpret it. He's like, that's actually—he said, that does make sense but it's the wrong way to take the passage. He says, think think about this. Look at what he says. He says, therefore, my heart is glad. Right? These aren't the same thing. They're steps upon each other. My heart is glad, and because my heart is glad, I'm going to express my love for God, and I'm going to rejoice. Why? Because my body will rest secure. So he's taking comfort in something that will happen to his dead body right? He says, because you, God, will not abandon me to the grave. How does he know that? 
which is why he uses this word, nor. These are two different things. He knows this first line because of the second line. Because the second line is true, he knows he will not be ultimately abandoned to Sheol or the place of the dead, whatever that is or whatever that means to him. He says, why? Because you won't let your Holy One even see decay. You see, what David believed was there was one that would come after him, the one who God would call his son and ascend to the throne that would be the Savior, and that one would apparently die but not see decay. There's something about David's curiosity that he searched these things out, somehow knew them, and that because there was one who would be king of whom he would never see decay, David knew that he was within that Savior's kingdom. And that belonging to the one that was resurrected from the grave, undecomposed, he knew that he would one day also be raised because he belonged to that king against whom most of the nations will rage, but with some will come to him and believe. And so David then securely believed that he would, he knew the path of life because of that, And that he would be filled with joy physically in God's future presence, embodied with eternal pleasures at his right hand. That is the scope. David David believed that he would be saved and redeemed from the grave in literally exactly the same way as us. When you read through the whole Bible, there's only ever one way of salvation, and it is that God makes a promise, and the human beings either believe it or they don't. And as time goes on, what those promises are and how they work and who fulfills them becomes clear. But there's one thing that's always clear, and it is that God is always doing them, and we are always not. Just go back this afternoon and read through this passage and see what of the things that happened Paul attributed to the human beings, you'll find that it's nothing. All the way through God says, then God chose us, and God did this, and God endured their behavior, and then God brought them here, and then God gave them this promise, and then God fulfilled the promise, and then God saved them, and then God made these things, and God gave us the prophets, and then God did everything, everything. God does. And so it's always just left to the humans. Will you recognize it? Will you see it? Will you release your stubbornness and ignorance that flows out of fear and pride and your jealousy? And will you turn and say, I I believe it. I believe it. It's right. You're right. You're right. I'm going to turn from those ways and turn to the God that freely pardons. I'm going to repent and be baptized. I'm going to, in faith, come to the one who pardons from every sin and justifies with a justification that could never have come from from the law or any other means. And then the last thing that happens is that the apostle says, and this is good for all people. He says at the end of the sermon, he says um, that you can be forgiven and justified. And then the word he says for the scope is for everybody. And the people listening to him don't really get that week what he meant by that. It isn't till the next week where the whole city turns up. All the people they don't like and all the people that weren't listening to them turn up at church, and they flip out a little bit, and they get jealous, and they get angry, and they attack Paul and Barnabas, and they say that it's what they're saying isn't true, and they're big liars, not because they thought it the week before, but because they're so angry about the people coming in, and people who should have to become Jews first. See, everybody that was in the first sermon was either culturally or religiously Jewish, or they were Gentiles who had become Jews. That is, they'd been circumcised, and they'd submitted themselves under the Jewish law. And what what Paul is saying is, no, the full and everlasting covenant has come through David and the king that comes through the line of David, which is for everyone, and it can be entered in by anyone simply through faith. And now all these non-Jewish religious people show up and they're like, that sounds awesome. And all these guys are like, that is not okay. That is my parking spot. 
We don't like you. And when that happens, Paul and Barnabas do not, they are not nice. When they're preaching in the sermon, they do everything they can to bend over backward not to offend the, not to offend the, uh, the vanity of the people listening to them. There's so much pro-Jewish talk in the sermon. He so wants these Jewish believers to see the connection with Jesus and to come to Jesus. But when the Gentiles show up, that is all these non-religiously Jewish Greeks, they, they all, they're all these weird cultures and they, they show up at this Jewish synagogue uncircumcised, not culturally okay. And these guys say, whoa, whoa, you, when you said everybody, you didn't mean, you couldn't have meant them. And Paul's like, I, I said everybody. I think that was pretty clear. And, and they flip out. And Paul at that point doesn't say, oh, it's, it's okay because they're sort of spiritually Jewish. He just says, listen, we had to come talk to you first because salvation is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But listen, The Jewish scriptures say to the Jewish people who would be the Jewish heralds of the Jewish Savior King that it was their job to go to all the nations, all the Gentiles, and all the peoples. And I will not disobey God because you don't like what God said about God. That's basically what they say, right? And you can see this in all the contexts that Paul quotes. In Psalm 2, it said, You're my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I will make all the nations your inheritance, the very ends of the earth your possession. If you read a little further in Isaiah 55, he says that nations you know not, nations you don't know will hasten to you because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, has endowed you with plunder. That is, you will be this like, religious group and other people you don't know and you don't like will see something lovely in you, something that has a kind of splendor to it, and they'll be drawn to you and you'll be like, ah, and that's the way it's supposed to work. And then you could actually see this in Psalm 16 too, but the passage they quote is from that same section of Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 5 and 6, and it just plainly says, now the Lord says, that is the Lord Yahweh says to his servant, that is the Savior, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to himself and to gather Israel to himself. So he is the Jewish Savior. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, that's the Lord God, says to the Savior, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And that is the part Paul quotes. That is, to not believe that is to forfeit salvation. Now be really careful here. That's what Paul says. When these people who had otherwise accepted the Christian message, when they said those people cannot become Christians, they were by definition saying something other than faith saves. Something other than faith in the object of the Savior King Jesus through repentant faith. Something else saves. Something else approves. Something else pardons. Something else justifies. And when that happens, what you believe is not the good news. You have made up a religion. You have made up some mechanism by which people earn their favor with God rather than inviting people to come to God and freely receive his favor and then out of joy and thankfulness they serve him freely out of love. And he says to these people who reject this, he says, clearly you don't consider yourself worthy of salvation. Um, because I I always think it's really cheesy when pastors quote like church growth hip books that just came off of some press as though they're important when churches are growing. So they'd be like, hey, we're growing and we're going to like build this new parking lot and lots of new people are here. We're going to get designer coffee and you just need to be nice to everybody. We need to be really welcoming. And people are like, why is this about you? Like, this is stupid, right? So I picked a quote from a pastor from 1833. 
Charles Simeon was appointed to Trinity Church in Cambridge, and he was young, and they wanted the associate pastor to become the senior pastor, and instead Simeon was installed, and people hated him so much, sight unseen, that in those days, in order to come to church, you had to pay a pew tax. So all the good pews had been purchased by, you know, upstanding families, and they had doors on them with locks. And so there was a church steward that would come and they—he would unlock your pew to make sure nobody could come in and sit in it, and you'd get it, and he'd close it for you, and that was your pew. And all of the pews in Trinity Church had been purchased by good, upstanding British families. And so they hated Simeon so much that they paid their pew tax and then had the warden lock their pew empty— So that Simeon had to preach to a church that was totally empty in the pews, and if you wanted to go there, you had to stand in the aisle. Which is kind of interesting. You read his book, they're very short sermons. (laughs) And and the fun thing is, is that from the very first day he went to his church, he was preaching the standing room only. So that's that's just a silly joke, sorry. But he said this. This This is in his sermon about this passage. And I'm going to skip a little bit because there's a lot of text here. But he says, Now it is a fact that cannot be disassembled or denied that circumstances not dissimilar are found wherever a man of apostolic spirit is called labor. So whenever a person who really is outreaching, who's a pastor, goes to labor somewhere, something like this always happens. Right? He says, Multitudes of those to whom he has been primarily or more particularly sent not only despise his message, but when others in the neighborhood flock to hear his word, are filled with envy. See, see, he's sent to his parish, that is the people who already go to the church. And he says what always happens is the people who already go to the church either don't like him to begin with, or when people who in the neighborhood or surrounding actually come to listen to the word of God, they hate him all the more and they hate the people all the more. He's like, this always happens, right? And then it says this, and complain of the inconvenience they sustain by having their churches so crowded. Right? He says, and they also then do what the Jewish leaders did, contradict and blaspheme both the testimony that's born and the minister who bears it. And he goes on to talk about how people behave. It is not some kind of like slick churchy thing for being a successful church by which we are commanded by the Savior to treat all people as having equal access and belonging to the message of the gospel. People from cultures we are very uncomfortable with will come in here. People with whom you believe you have this strong commitment to diversity, but when you interrelate with them culturally, you'll realize you have profound differences with them and you don't really feel deep down like you can trust them. And so the temptation is to slowly draw away from them. I was saying in staff meeting today, or not today, but a few days, I was like, listen, people hate diversity. One of the most universal realities of all human experience is that human beings hate diversity. They always move away from it, and wherever it happens, people start killing each other. That doesn't mean it's not an absolute biblical command that we embrace it. Why? Because human beings are full of these jealousies. We're full of fear and pride, and so that's what always happens. But part of being, having any understanding of the gospel as it really is, is that it is entirely open and inviting to everyone. The only conditions of the gospel are repentant faith and its expression in baptism. That's it. That's it. And what Paul says here is when we reject that, as a church or individually, we consider ourselves unworthy of salvation. That is how non-negotiable that claim is. Because to lose it is to lose everything. It is to lose a gospel of grace that is about the pardoning generosity of the Savior God who's done everything for us, and instead to demand that people conform to something that we concoct so that they can think of themselves as good and damn themselves in pride. So as we close here and as the band comes up, um, I want to encourage you to just to, to, to respond to Habakkuk 1.5, where Paul says, make sure that what is said about the prophets isn't true of you. 
that the day never comes where God has to say to you, look, you scoffer, see what you wouldn't accept and die because I'm going to do something that you wouldn't believe even if somebody told you they'd seen it themselves. But instead recognize that King Jesus has come. He is the King Savior. And he offers forgiveness and absolute, complete, total pardon to anyone who would come to him in repentant faith. And that he demands that we never narrow his divine and eternal covenant of invitation to anyone who would come. And that those of us who've been Christians for a long time, who find ourselves upset that our parking spots are taken, frustrated that there are people with different cultural beliefs that are making bad family choices or something, or that don't parent their wild children, or that don't look nice enough for church, or don't look casual enough for church, or whatever. That narrowing the invitation of the gospel is the blaspheming rejection of the gospel. And that we need to always repent of that immediately when we see it cropping up in our own hearts. So as we sing the song, why don't you, why don't you stand and sing with us if you're able and pl- please utilize this song as a response of faith because that's got, all God ever asks of us is repentant faith. Let's sing together. <laughs>